0: So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence squared 2. That's notion.com/ squared. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens, and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. Your support helps us to produce more amazing podcasts, stage more live debates each year, and it will bring you even closer to the world's most brilliant minds. And if you're an Apple podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast we're joined by Sir Lawrence Friedman to look back at a range of conflicts from the Cuban Missile Crisis to Russia's wars in Chechnya and Ukraine, to understand the tension between military decision-making and civilian priorities. Sir Lawrence Friedman is Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London. His new book is Command, The Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine. He's joined today in conversation by Mark Galliotti, Honorary Professor at UCL and author of We Need to Talk About Putin, How the West Gets Him Wrong. Here's Mark with more. Well, hello and welcome to this
2: Intelligence Squared event with Sir Lawrence Friedman. He's, I think it's fair to say, the UK's leading expert in strategic studies. He's the well, an award-winning author who clearly has been very much in demand in this past year because of all the developments and, and then the eventual invasion of Ukraine. And the, his book, Command, is a very wide-ranging book that really tries to unpick not just military history, but particularly the whole question of how military force is deployed by whom and what are the various pitfalls, particularly in the relationship between the political and the military. So that's what we'll be talking about. Laurie, let me just start with you. And at first, actually, I was going to frame this in a a very tactless way by saying what was the point of this book. But let me reframe that as what is the point that you would most like to come through with this book?
1: Thank you. Um, Well, the point of the book for me was a point that I've actually been bothering me for some time, which is the tendency for people when they're writing about military operations as opposed to grand strategy to forget the politics, to look at questions of tactics and uh, how you deploy your forces in isolation. Yet every conflict I've looked at, and unfortunately I've had opportunities to look at many now, the politics is crucial. It infuses everything that the generals do. So I wanted to bring that out. And also, I think it challenges the idea that uh, civilians sort of set the objectives and the military just implement them in some way. The civilians when setting the objectives need to know what the military is saying, what they think is possible and not possible. So that was the underlying theme. And then the other point for me was to look at post-1945 military history. There are Excellent books being produced all the time on the First World War on the Second World War, but not so much about the military history of the past uh, 80 years. And I wanted to look more at that because there are a lot of absolutely fascinating conflicts that is known to specialist audiences, but not perhaps well so well known uh, to the general public.
2: Okay, now, it's interesting what you say about the, the political dimension, because clearly we also have a problem now, or a challenge perhaps, that we have a political class, which includes some people who have military experience. But... On the whole, not. You know, we, we are post an era in which people would have done their national service, for example. And therefore, matters military are often things that they're going to have seen on screen. And I am led to understand that war films sometimes are not the best guide to how modern conflicts really go. So, again, before I move on to my next question, I just wanted to sort of dig a little bit deeper in that. How well do you feel, and whether you can generalize, that modern political elites in the West in particular, because obviously you have different situations with with, with dictators, which again I'll I'll come to in in a little bit, Um, how well do you think they actually understand the the constraints and the realities of the use of military force?
1: Well, they've been through uh, two pretty grueling experiences with Iraq and Afghanistan, if we're we're looking at, at the UK and the US. And I think it is the case actually there's a there's a generation of politicians that include quite a number now who've had that sort of experience who've had some experience of those wars. You know there was a period after basically George H. Bush, who had quite a distinguished career in in, in the Air Force during the second World War, none of the subsequent u s presidents have military experience more to the point they'd avoided getting military experience by avoiding. Vietnam, with the exception of Obama, who was too young. So uh, that did make a difference. And I think it created a tension in civil military relations. In, in the UK, I mean, I was struck when looking at the Falklands, I thought Thatcher obviously was of a generation who remembered the Second World War, but she had no understanding at all of, of, of military things. But of the members of her war cabinet, two had got military crosses during the Second World War. Um, now, that obviously wouldn't be the case now. And they, and they were very important in, in saying this is how war goes. The, 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 the tragedies do happen in war. You can't expect things to work exactly as planned. So I, I think it's an understanding of the pitfalls of war uh, that is important. Uh, and while I, you know, anybody who's watched the, our experience of, of in this century knows plenty about pitfalls, it's connected with counterinsurgency by and large. Whereas of course what we're seeing at the moment uh, is, is a different completely different set of pitfalls, a sort of a conventional war of a sort we really haven't seen for a long time, and a reminder of the things that can go very badly wrong in those
2: sorts of wars as well. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the Falklands War, because I thought, you know, one of the, the many very sort of strong case studies in the book was precisely your exploration of the Falklands War, which, of course, you're fairly sort of marinated in the, the history thereof. Um, and, and again, the interesting juxtaposition in that, on the one hand, we had Margaret Thatcher's essentially civilian cabinet, though, obviously, as you say, with, you know, people with experience, actually seem to understand the realities of what they were taking on a lot better than a military hunter full of people wearing uniforms. Can you just sort of unpick why that would be? Because one would automatically assume that generals understand war. One would. Um,
1: so I think on on the British side, uh, it's because there was a degree of deference to the Chief of Defence Staff, uh, Admiral Sir Terry Lewin, who did understand Uh, naval warfare. He also had seen experience during the Second World War. Uh, And basically, he he was very careful to give advice to the war cabinet to to get their their judgments. But actually, they left a lot to him. And he used the authority uh, carefully and more so successfully. And he had a a series of quite experienced admirals below him. On the hunter side, it's it's sort of an interesting example of the extent to which once you get drawn into running a country as opposed to running an army, your military experience tends to count for less. What the hunter had been doing had been persecuting opponents within Argentina uh, rather than preparing to fight wars, and the factionalism and the sort of infighting that develops in the, in the sort of power, in constant power struggles that go on in these sorts of punters um, undermined their capacity to actually fight war. Galtieri uh, had no serious relevant experience. Uh, Admiral Anaya who ran the Argentine Navy, sort of did, but he was a very hardline nationalist and took fright as soon as he lost uh, one of his big ships.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, this question of what happens when militaries do things that are not military. Uh, I mean, you also talk, for example, about uh, South Korea and the degree to which actually, when militaries not only start running the country, but also get concerned about coup-proofing themselves. That becomes an issue. Could you kind of elaborate I mean, on that a the little? The
1: coup-proofing point is, is really interesting because it happens particularly with dictators who have uh, claimed to... Uh, be field marshals or whatever, and by putting on a uniform, um, like I don't know, Mobutu in Zaire or uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, without actually having any particular relevant experience. But if they put on a uniform, they think they can give orders. Uh, but, but precisely because of the way they've come to power, uh, they're nervous about people coming to power in the same way. So instead of looking for professional competence in their leaders, they look for loyalty instead. And sometimes this can be absolutely disastrous, because with Mobutu, for example, it, it was, uh, in the end, he only really trusted relations with Saddam. It had to be members of the Ba'ath Party. Uh, and eventually, when they get into a war that happened with Saddam in the war with Iran that went on for much of the 1980s, he was losing. And he suddenly realized he actually did need people who understood how to run armies in charge. You another example is President Chu in, in, in South Vietnam, who uh, uh, didn't even want his senior, senior generals to confer with one another, uh, lest they start plotting when they did, because there'd been a succession of military coups, which is how he'd got to power. Uh, so uh, it's an important aspect of why authoritarian regimes, not all of them, but often fall, often fail, is is because that they don't trust the generals, to get on with fighting wars rather than uh, plotting to take over the government.
2: Yes, I mean, very much thinking of the the shade of, of Joseph Stalin, who purged his officer corps before the Second World War. But fortunately for him... In 1942, he realized that actually political hacks do not necessarily make better generals than professional soldiers. And you have this kind of grotesque spectacle of people actually like Rokossovsky being pulled out of gulag labor camps and saying, you know, with a sort of metaphorical, whoops, here's your uniform. You are now in command uh, of, of, of a front or whatever. But that that point you make, and it's something that comes up in the book, which which sounds very counterintuitive, is precisely that in fact democracies are better war fighting engines than dictatorships. And it is precisely because of this issue of what checks and balances and a concern about uh, not you know trust not trusting your own soldiers.
1: Yeah, I mean democracies, as we know, can, can make big mistakes. So it it doesn't guarantee that they don't make unnecessary moves into warfare. But they have an ability to adjust and adapt thereafter. Uh, there are checks and balances. Whereas I think the problem with with dictators, uh, autocrats is that they get surrounded by sycophants. You don't have that sort of still, small voice saying, are you sure this is a good idea? Have you thought about this? Um, what happens if they do that? You don't have that. So they can be bold. They can catch their opponents by surprise. Uh, but then all the pitfalls that they might have been alert to then catch them by surprise. And they believe that it becomes hubris and they believe their own bravado. I think there are a number of examples of just this, this lack of self-awareness. And, you know, it is worth noting that though, you know, Western military experience has uh, is, is got Vietnam and it's got Iraq and it's got Afghanistan, these weren't defeats in battle. These were getting into situations where you just weren't welcome in the, in the places where you were occupied. Where you get real defeats in battle, th- this is... Often because people assume that military power can achieve things for them that it really can't.
2: Now, hopefully, again, I'm sure there'll be questions on this topic. But if we have time, we'll, we'll come to Ukraine properly at, at the end of this conversation. But as, as you were speaking, I mean, apart from the fact that you know, if, if I if I had one one little sort of wish, I had wished that in fact there was more about uh, the basically the, the North Koreans and the North Vietnamese. I it'd been interesting to see that, but. How far, again, in many ways, you're talking about the war in Ukraine. You are precisely talking about um, a leader who, on the one hand, assumes that he knows about military matters, even though Putin has, well, so a little derisory amount of reserve officer training when he was at university, which if you talk to any Soviet citizen of that generation, they'll tell you just how little it was involved. And yet he puts himself at the fore of of sort of planning and de- determining how he will fight this war. And then you have President Zelensky, a man who clearly also has no real military experience, but is instead willing to adopt his role as the, the political leader, the rallying force, the icon and the advocate abroad while he lets his generals be his generals. I mean, so it's a real case study of precisely that, that that issue about how societies shape the military. But of course, I mean, that obviously depends on the politicians being willing to accept their role. But it also presumably depends on the military learning how they're going to interact with the politicians. So they're, they're commanders, but they're also advocates. And that obviously can become a problem. There's a very nice little um, vignette in your book. Um, I mean, we talk about this clearly a lot also in, in the context of the French uh, wars of, well, I don't say colonial wars, but really they, they were decolonial wars, but particularly Wes Clark in, in, in Kosovo. And the point when sort of he gets his sort of furious response, uh, the Secretary of Defense asked me to give you some verbatim guidance. So here it is. Get your expletive deleted. Face off the TV. No more briefings, period. Oh, that's it. Is there an issue now? that we have also a, a, a kind of a, not a generation, but let's say a particular cohort of military officers who precisely, they do understand the political context, they are media savvy, um, they know how much the camera loves to see some craggy-faced guy in camouflage, um, and, and use that precisely to try and get the politicians to do what they want.
1: Well, I think it is an issue, and it's been an issue... Uh, particularly in the American system. It's happened a bit in the UK, but it's, it's more in the American system. There's, there's one particular example in, uh, when Obama came to power and uh, he was under pressure to do something about uh, Afghanistan. And it was a difficult one for him because he'd made a name for himself by denouncing the war in Iraq, but he sort of described Afghanistan as a good war. Yet actually when he, he arrived, it was clearly not going very well. And uh, he, he uh, Stan McChrystal was, was was put in charge, General Stan McChrystal was put in charge of, of uh, trying to find a way forward in Afghanistan. And he came up with a plan that was going to involve, did involve, tens of thousands extra troops going to Afghanistan. And uh, they were, went on television, they gave interviews, they leaked stuff to the Washington Post, they, they spoke at conferences all uh, making this the, the obvious thing to do so that Obama began to feel, feel bounced into doing something he wasn't sure about. And because precisely because he had no military experience himself, he didn't feel that able to fight back. So that just led to protracted and long discussions and actually a rather unsatisfactory compromise at the end where, whereby they got the troops, but only for a, a, a limited time, which meant, of course, the Taliban... Didn't have to work out very hard what they had to do to see this out. They just had to wait. So uh, that was a very good example of the of the military uh, getting ahead of themselves. I mean, you mentioned the French decolonial wars, the wars of national liberation for the for the Vietnamese and the uh, Algerians. So in the case of Algeria, the French army felt they'd won. That they'd suppressed the FLN. They, that they'd uh, uh, using Methods that were pretty brutal, including torture. They they had uh, beaten the enemy, and then they found that de Gaulle, who obviously had, uh, was not short of military credibility himself, who they'd helped to bring to power, uh, because the previ- when the previous government looked like reneging on the commitment to algerie française they suddenly discovered he was going to do the same, uh, and yet another coup was in the offing. So you do get this sense sometimes of those who are absolutely committed to the fight being absolutely furious with the political echelon who isn't giving it the support that they think it deserves. And if we talk about Ukraine, we can see this happening a bit in Russia at the moment. So there's there's a point where you're not giving advice anymore in uniform. You're moving beyond giving advice to thinking, actually, you could do the political job better. Uh, And that's what leads to coups or can lead to coups.
2: Yeah, and that creates this this interesting sort of issue about the fact that, um, you know, obviously this book's called Command, um, which implies a very sort of rigid chain of command. But in some cases, we actually find ourselves in a position in which, you know, generals or military officers will regard insubordination actually as a virtue. And again, just one other quote, um, very, very sort of telling one from Ariel Sharon, the Israeli general, who said, when I receive an order, I treat it according to three values. The first and most important is the good of the state. The state is the supreme thing. The second value is my obligation to my subordinates. And the third value is my obligation to my superiors. Now, you know, Ariel Sharon, whatever his... his, uh, military talents was also, you know, a thoroughgoing pain in the backside to to anyone, any government that that tried to give him orders. And and we would regard that as something insubordination. But, you know, there have also been times in which in many ways we've actually depended on that, whether it was Lieutenant Colonel Petrov, wasn't it, in 1983, um, a... Soviet uh, sort of officer in, in in a nuclear missile silo who decided that actually this didn't look like an uh, an American missile attack and chose to ignore rules, or whether it's Mike Jackson um, in a, a Pristina airport when when facing Russian paratroopers in 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 Kosovo in the middle of the Balkans war and actually telling again Wes Clark that he isn't going to start World War Three for him. Where's where's the balance? Uh, you know, how far can we actually rely on soldiers' own sense of what is the right thing to do?
1: I mean, there's, there's two parts to it, I think. The first is we do rely on, on uh, junior officers and sometimes quite senior officers being prepared to take an initiative. Sometimes they have to. Uh, the communications have been cut. Uh, they're in a situation which nobody could have anticipated. There's no time to get better orders and so on. And that's an important quality. And and we expect it, uh, certainly in the West, and where you lack it, it causes more problems because uh, while people are waiting for better orders, they they, they get overrun. So uh, this sort of mission command and delegation of of command, that's uh, quite an important quality. Then you get the the sort of inherently insubordinate, like Sharon is a perfect example. Uh, Sharon had invariably had contempt for whoever was giving him orders and it was only with great effort that he managed to be reined in. He happened to be a brilliant operational commander. he was extremely good at that but he always wanted to go too far or always want, wanted to get on with things and of course when he was in charge as minister of defense in 1982 this was catastrophic because there was nobody holding him back. And he he led Israel into this uh, tragic war in the Lebanon, uh, when when we're living with the consequences still. So people like Moshe Dayan, who was superior to um, Sharon, were always trying to exercise control, but saw the virtues of him if you could control him. So the politics of it vary. So there's, there's two interesting issues with both Sharon and Jackson. One of the issues with Sharon in 1973, during the October war, is actually he'd just been called back as a reservist to lead his division, uh, having just become a politician, having just been one of the founders of the Likud party. And he was constantly uh, assuming that one of the other divisions in uh, under Southern command, which was led by... Uh, one of the them, the, the ruling party, the Labour Party, was sort of being preferred to him and getting the share of the glory. So there was a, a, a genuine political partisan competition between the two divisions. With Jackson, the issue was uh, the problems of multilateral operations, of coalition operations. Jackson was a UK commander in charge uh, of, of, a, of a NATO force, whereas Jackson was in overall charge of of the NATO operation. Uh, But he was having trouble uh, with that quote you suggest with his own uh, senior officers who who thought he was pushing for a more aggressive policy than the administration wanted. Uh, But the fact is that Jackson could get a red card from the British government if the British government were persuaded that he was being asked to do things that went against British policy. So what it actually shows, and you know, why the book is about the politics of military operations, is that when you have uh, these very complex command arrangements, uh, where there's more than one chain of command ha- that has to be aligned, um, you can get clashes of this sort. And in the end, I mean, the problem was that West Clark was right in his analysis of what the Russians were up to. But Jackson was right that he could deal with it as, as the man on the ground, uh, which is what he was able to do. Although I don't think it was ever close to World War Three, as uh, his
0: little outburst suggested. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared. netsuite.com/squared. no, but it is amazing what uh, sharing
2: a bottle of whiskey with your Russian oppo um, actually can help as a as a means to to achieving some kind of battlefield detente. Um, I want to go into actually talking about actually how in the future, command may change. But uh, obligatory little reminder, do by all means, if you have any observations, people would like to tweet out, remember, use the hashtag IQ2. And likewise, we're getting some interesting questions coming in, but if you'd like to place your own question, just use the ask a question, logically enough, tab at the bottom of the screen. Anyway, yes, the the future. I mean, one one of the interesting things is that when I was reading the book, I was wondering how far the changes in technology and notions of war in this quite extraordinary 80 year period. Um, how far they would change. And obviously, some things, they change a lot, particularly, obviously, the advent of, of nuclear weapons. And others on the human dimension actually are are still very, very similar and familiar. So really, I just wanted to kind of look at three aspects of how war seems to have changed and is changing and see how you felt this affects not just the nature of command, but also the, the usability of military force and so forth. And the, and the first one is everything's so damn fast these days. I mean, on the one hand, you've got now commanders back in their bunkers who are watching real-time video feeds from soldiers' helmet cameras and drones and everything else, temptation to micromanage and such like. But so, you know, on the one hand, unparalleled levels of information on the battlefield. But also, on the other hand, things just are happening very, very quickly, you know, not just the speed at which things move, but essentially the political environment can also change. I mean, how far is that making command in a sort of strategic top-down sense harder or even impossible or quite the opposite? Does it make it easier when actually every sergeant can metaphorically have a colonel breathing over his shoulder?
1: Yes, I think it's one of the most important changes. Uh, it's different. I mean, it, 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 it has pluses and minuses and it partly depends on sort of common sense uh, of those in these situations. So, you know, if you go back to maybe the first couple of decades after the Second World War, communication technology hadn't changed. Even if you go up to the Falklands, there were enormous difficulties in secure communications between parts of the fleet. So that, you know, Jeremy Moore, who was um, on, on the QE2, the, the land commander, Uh, Traveling to the South Atlantic, the secure communications just went. So he was almost uncommunicado during a critical part of the war. Ten years later, uh, in Desert Storm, then you're starting to see the impact of communications technology affecting both the media coverage of the war uh, and the close interaction between the the national capital and the the, uh, generals and uh, between the generals uh, and the junior officers. Under Obama, you have him sitting around with his National Security Council watching the operation to take out bin Laden. So there's enormous changes over this period. Now, one of the issues is, and you actually, again, Keep on coming back to it. We saw it in the early stages of the of the current war. Is it's fine until your communication links get broken, and that can happen, uh, or, and they can get disrupted. So a lot of effort now goes into disrupting these communications link, cyber attacks as well, or inserting fake news into all of this. So as you have written yourself, uh, <laughs> all of this can be weaponized and. So it can confuse the information environment uh, as well as give you clarity. It also, as again you, you indicate, it can mean you can have both the strategic corporal, a very junior officer, uh, suddenly finds themselves, because of the nature of the conflict, with big decisions to make and not really time to ask anybody else how to do it. But the tactical general who's watching there saying, uh, interfering without necessarily appreciating all the factors at work. They can see so much, but maybe they can't see how tired the soldiers are, the difficulties they've been having with logistics. There's all sorts of things that they may just not appreciate, even though the video feed's working well. So it's a complicating factor. I'd say the situation awareness of a modern commander is extraordinary, potentially now and something that the sort of commanders in the world wars would, could have only dreamed about uh, in terms of what they can know. But again, if, you, if you're following the current war, uh, as you know, an awful lot of people have got situational awareness and uh, are, are putting stuff out on Telegram posts and uh, and other social media which isn't so good for operational security. So it's an incredibly complex operational environment. I think it is one of the things that's changed probably more than anything else over this period, other than nuclear weapons, which I think you're right to highlight as the, the big one.
2: Okay, then how about drones? I mean, I remember from my own time as um, when, when I was a professor at New York University and one of my students was, was an ex-American drone pilot and hearing sort of surreal tales of being at a, Undisclosed location in the Midwest, sitting in front of a screen and killing people on the other side of the world. One of the things that people worry about with drones is precisely that it uh, basically takes that jeopardy of putting your own boys and girls into the battlefield out of the equation. And it might make politicians much more keen on warfare if they think they can basically do it, where none of their people are going to be at risk. It's just all these various kind of robots. But, but again, when it, when it comes to command and, and this whole issue of, of the interaction of, of the military and, and the political, I mean, how far do you think the drone is going to change that? Or is, or is it not? Is it just going to continue to be just an annex, just like the, the helicopter or whatever?
1: Yeah, I think there are layers of technology and, and, and the drone is, is an important layer, but the helicopters are still important. Fixed-wing aircraft is still important. So it, it adds. Its most important role in big warfare is surveillance. Uh, that, that If you want your artillery to pick out targets, it's quite helpful to have something loitering around that, that can identify the targets that, that need to be hit as quickly as possible. But they can carry their own weapons now. And of course, I think drones gained this sort of attention and and what your uh, student was telling you from that period in the from the war on terror, as we call it, uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, but also in Yemen, Somalia and other places as well, West Pakistan, where You're you're in anti-terrorist operations, essentially, and you find a group of people who you believe to be up to no good, and you can kill them. Uh, Now, that contains lots of dangers, of which the most obvious one is it turns out they're not up to no good, and you acted as executioner on the basis of pretty poor evidence. We know that happened. On the other hand, it may save a lot more lives than sending a, a, a great number of patrols out uh, in and trying to take these people uh, and, and check out what they're actually doing. I mean, you often wonder what would have happened if drone technology uh, had been working as it later was working, even after 9-11, if they could have just taken out Bin Laden there and then. What happened afterwards might have been uh, a lot better for everybody. So there are, there are trade-offs in all of this. But, but there was concern that the, you were getting to this sort of virtual war. Again, it was something that was very clear during the Obama administration, where Obama was essentially signing off on, on these sort of targeted killings, trying to give them a sort of veneer of legality. I think that was a very specific set of circumstances. Uh, it, it's still going to be relevant in in... Forms of guerrilla warfare or anti-terrorist campaigns, but I think we've seen in the current war that uh, drones are important. They are carrying weapons or just being used for surveillance, but they don't win wars all by themselves. And uh, I suppose the final point to note, which is relevant to the to the uh, idea of autonomous weapons, but the idea of of machine learning that the 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 these the, the robotic systems will will not go out being just being handled by somebody thousands of miles away, uh, but actually will start to take decisions on their own because they can. I think we're somewhere away from that. What you are seeing already is very tactical decisions. I mean, a good example is something like Iron Dome, the Israeli defensive system. Where incoming uh, rockets are identified, those that are likely something important are picked out. Available systems to take them out are noted, and they're sent off. All in seconds, which individuals couldn't do. So you're seeing that sort of thing, and and that area of uh, depending on machines to manage tactical situations could well increase.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, look, um, we've just got a couple of more minutes before I head to audience questions, and I'm seeing them already sort of racking up. But nonetheless, let me indulge myself in those two minutes and ask you a, a question, therefore, that sort of I think will segue into the, most of the questions, which are at the moment seem to be about Ukraine. Is obviously. This war is unfortunately not yet uh, resolved. But insofar as we have seen it now, you know, one one can see examples of of, of tactical innovation. We have seen examples of some phenomenal Russian blunders. What do you think, though, in a way, moving aside from just the individual situational thing, what, if anything, do you think the Ukraine war is telling us that is new or about changing face of of combat and command?
1: You know, in some ways, surprisingly little. I think a Second World War commander, you know, would be surprised by a lot of the technology, but by and large would understand what was going on. He'd understand the the folly of getting fixated by trying to take particular cities, uh, of ignoring the possibility of encirclement. A reminder that logistics is critical in all wars, that you always use more ammunition than you expected to use. All of these things, I don't think would uh, are that surprising um I think what has been surprising in some way are the things that we expected to see which we've seen less of I mean there were cyber attacks by Russia right at the start but they were uh, were not successful uh, and there was uh, uh, and you know, Microsoft claims to have made a big difference here but whoever did it uh, they were seen off Air power uh, which has been one of the you know, main features of combat, uh, certainly involving the West uh, over this period, has been there, but surprisingly less prominent than one expected. Before the war started, uh, I was being told that this was going to make all the difference on day one, that the Russians would come in and uh, and take out all the Ukrainian uh, air power and Ukrainian aircraft are still flying. So uh, I think that's, that was surprising. But I think actually, it's in some ways, in some terrible ways, it's quite an old-fashioned sort of war, and it's uh, and the lessons are pretty timeless lessons in many ways. It matters what you're fighting for. It matters. It matters with your logistics, keeping your your people supplied. Polit- the quality of political leadership makes a difference. Now you know, Zelensky is operating on an international stage, but you know you could see. When he was uh, making his pitch to the British House of Commons, for example, he knew exactly to pick up on Churchill in in, in making his points. So I think it's less surprising, and I think that's one reason why I would say that a knowledge of military history has been really quite helpful in, in this war. It, it makes you less surprised by things than, than you know if if you're if you're just thinking of of the of the counterinsurgency campaigns with which, you know, we became more familiar because of Iraq and
2: Afghanistan. Absolutely. And obviously, it is crucial that everyone study history. Let's move to audience questions. And just a reminder, do tweet using the hashtag IQ2. A lot of questions on, on Ukraine. So I'll start with a couple of them first. President Biden has said, this is from Oliver, President Biden has said that he doesn't want a new Cold War. But do you think there could be some political advantages for the US in having one, for example, having an external enemy? And I'll just tack on to that. Are we in a new Cold War?
1: Well, we're in a hot war. Um, and you know, the net result of which I think diminishes Russia as a major power. It's still obviously got the nuclear weapons. And Biden, I think, has been very clear. He wants to avoid giving Putin any reason for nuclear escalation, which means containing this war. But actually, I I think we're, we're in a very difficult situation with how we relate to Russia, because the guy in charge has made himself an international pariah. And it's just very hard to see how you have summit meetings and conferences and negotiations with somebody who's conducted himself and waged a war in this way. And that's a problem, because at some point we need to get out of sanctions. We need to have proper dialogue you want arms control talks to to begin again and so on. So it would be unfortunate if we went back to that. But, you know, sometimes things are set in motion that it is very hard to extricate yourself from. So I think the, 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 there is a problem. I don't think particularly Biden wants it. Biden's priority is China. Uh, and there he's got a much more substantial rival adversary to deal with. And And Biden, I think, and many of his team, would quite like this conflict to be over so they can get back to preparing for what they see as a, a much more substantial long-term competition. And the the sense Russia is a declining power that has now declined even more uh because because of this because of this action.
2: Indeed. I must admit I, I can't help but feel that there's two wars going on. There's a very, as you said, very sort of old fashioned war taking place in Ukraine and a very 21st century war between Russia and the West, being fought through economics, politics, and everything else.
1: I think that's that's an important point, and I, and I agree. I think they're, they're parallel. Uh, I think Putin has relied a lot on sort of economic coercion of the West, as the West has relied on economic coercion of Russia, and neither has worked in the end. Um, and I think the West has impeded the Russian war effort quite a lot, largely because of microchips. Um, Russia has caused a lot of pain, to, to Europe because of the energy, but the, the, the neither has, has changed their basic political stances because it's such a sharp polarized conflict. It's not it's not fuzzy. It's not grey. It's it's very black and white.
2: Yeah, no, distinctly unfuzzy. And on that point, with with their uh, indulgence, there's several questions about how this war could end, and I'll kind of roll them together. You know, there's obviously the suggestion by Elon Musk, the, the great geopolitical statesman of our time, um, suggesting a sort of possible way forward by the United Nations overseeing votes in the sort of disputed territories. We've also got you know just a general question of, of, of how do you think that th- this can end? And in some ways that uh, both Russia and Ukraine see so Ukraine already as a sort of de facto a member of NATO, even though the West doesn't. So, you know, again, how, how can that be resolved? So, you know, no pressure. Just tell us how this, this whole war ends and can be resolved happily ever after.
1: Well, um, first I'll put a proposition to which I would like your response, which is, I think, for first, I, I don't, it, it doesn't end while Russia occupies Ukrainian territory because the Ukrainians will just keep on fighting. I think given everything that's happened to Ukrainians under occupation, they're not going to be satisfied while any Ukrainians are seem to live under occupation, while Putin by this sort of foolish annexation, uh, just at the point where he was about to see territory taken away from Russian control, has made it much harder for himself because now he has to—he's giving away what he claims to be Russia. So actually, it needs it needs Russia to acknowledge defeat. I think, uh, and that's not an easy thing. Uh, so my proposition is: it's the military, the Russian military, that will need to call it a day because, at some point, this just becomes untenable for them. They've lost so much already by way of equipment, stocks, officer corps, elite units, reputation. That if this carries on, when they still have other duties to perform in terms of national security, that that, that is is the point at which something may may happen and change within Moscow, but you know more about Moscow than I do, and I think everybody's finding it pretty opaque at the moment. The second point is there will have to be negotiations at some point because there are still issues to be sorted out. Uh, I think I think the problem with Elon Musk's contribution, well, there are many problems with it, is it's ignorant. I mean, it, it's ignorant of the history of the conflict and the role of the Ukrainian national feeling now, which has increased no end because of the war. But there are going to be issues, I think Crimea is the obvious one, where it may just appear a step too far, where there may be a possibility of some sort of diplomatic imagination, not a a referendum, another referendum, but possibly, I don't know, shared citizenship or something like that. Zelensky was talking about things like that early on in the war. I don't know whether it's a runner now, but it's a possibility. But you've got all the issues of sanctions, of reparations, of war crimes, of uh, claims of abducted children, and so on. All of these things are going to have to be sorted out in some way. Plus, you know, you, you want Russia at some point to be able to have reasonably normal relations with other countries. So at some point, I think there will have to be negotiation. What I don't think works is a negotiation that will come in before the fighting has produced a more decisive result. I think this has just been too brutal and too vicious uh, for that to work. It might have worked earlier on, but but I don't think it works now. On the NATO point, well, you know, if, if Ukraine was a member of NATO, NATO would have been fighting this war. But it isn't, so they're not. Uh, and Biden has, and others have been very clear. that uh, I think that's why Putin is using, you know, does use nuclear weapons to deter that very thing. So it it isn't part of NATO. And actually, I think Ukrainian thinking has developed quite a bit since the start of the war. I don't think um, membership of NATO is the be-all and end-all that they might have thought. I think what they're looking for is security guarantees from individual countries, which is a different matter. Uh, and then just building up their own capabilities, so the Russians don't try anything so stupid again. So I'm I'm not sure actually that that NATO is as important an issue as it seemed early on in the war. We'll see. I mean, Zelensky responded to Putin's annexation announcement by you know asking for fast track membership of NATO, uh, but I think that was a a strong political response, and Biden almost. To, as quickly said, we'll leave that till later. So uh, I, I think we'll be looking at different sorts of security arrangements. But, you know, the, the basic problem we've got here is, is there are you know, two countries that used to be, you know, part of, of one state now really hate each other. And it's going to take an awful long time to get over that.
2: No, I, absolutely. And I, I think, again, I, I definitely would agree with you in some ways, it's going to be the arithmetic of the battlefield. That creates the the basis for some kind of political settlement. At present, the the suggestions of talks are well-meaning but pointless because the two sides are just so far apart. There is just no common ground. There's nothing to talk about, to be honest. Um, It's interesting what you say about the in some ways the Russian military will will perhaps be the the determining factor. And although it still seems uh, a, a very surreal and implausible scenario, There is a part of me that wonders if we're heading towards a situation as in February, well, March by our calendar, 1917, where, you know, Tsar Nicholas II had made himself commander in chief because he was sure this was going to be a great victorious war. And yet the First World War turned out to be absolutely catastrophic for Russia. And eventually, you know, again, it's a collection of the, I hesitate to call them the great and the good, but certainly the powerful and the uniformed who stop his train and basically tell him, it's time that you made your last service to the for for, for the fatherland, and and, and step down. So again, that that may be a scenario we'll see. And I think also I thought it's worth I just say absolutely I think Crimea is going to be the key sticking point. That's that's what scares me. I can understand that you know international law is absolutely on the Ukrainian side wanting to reclaim it. But this is territory that's not just Putin, but most Russians think is was rightfully Russian from the first. We'll see. Let me then pivot to the last few minutes. Um, we do have some questions which are not actually a, a, about Ukraine. And again, I'll, I'll roll two of them together. In the, the sort of, how far does, to use Eisenhower's phrase, the military-industrial complex, dictate, uh, well, British foreign policy, but also through you know, think tanks and so forth, you know, in influence our, our thinking of, of the military? I've got my own answer, but I'd be interested in yours.
1: I don't think it, I mean, I think there is a military establishment, of which academics can be as important a part as, uh, as, as industry, uh, somebody has noted in a review of my book, that share assumptions about threats and uh, means of dealing with these threats and what military capabilities can do. Eisenhower was talking at a particular stage of the Cold War when all the emphasis was on a technological arms race. And he he was fed up with proposals for incredible new systems that would transform warfare forever, about which he was properly sceptical. So it, it it was a complaint of a, of a particular time, and I, I, and you know I don't think defence industry you know they were well beyond the sort of turn of the twentieth century concern about merchants of death and and so on. I don't think that I don't think that's the problem, but there is an issue about an establishment with shared assumptions that sometimes can get overexcited about armed force uh, and a lot of what I've uh, not just this book but other books uh, is, uh, is just people encourage people to check their assumptions um, Armed force uh, sometimes you have to use it particularly in defense but it has great limitations.
2: Just to follow up on that um, again i I agree that I think it's too simplistic to think the sort of defense industrial complex wants us all to be at war. Not least because they can make huge amounts of money when we're not at war. We are also entering an age of quite. I mean, again, this is word exquisite that is many ways, uh, uh, frankly, a a sort of a a way of basically saying eye-wateringly expensive weapon systems, F thirty five jets and so forth, which are meant to have these quite phenomenal capabilities, but also, you know, basically you're sort of spending huge amounts of, of, of money on them. Is, is there a problem with the fact that actually we are getting seduced by high tech and above all, very high price tag weapons at the expense of the nuts and bolts of, you know, when it comes down to it, it's, 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 it's a man or a woman in a trench with a gun?
1: Um, I think it's important to have the man or woman in the trench. Uh, properly equipped with decent uh, kit and body armor uh, and, and weapons. But, you know, I think, again, one of the things we have seen in this uh, war is that actually a high-tech kit can work very well. I mean, especially very precise artillery that can operate over large distances. I think that that's made a real difference to the how the war has developed. Uh, and that, But some kit that the Russians were proclaiming as being real state of the art hasn't worked well at all. By and large, American kit has come out of this better than Russian kit. So I don't think you can say that all the high-tech stuff doesn't work. You're still going to need tanks, you're still going to need artillery at sea, you're still going to need submarines and warships and so on. But what I think that you clearly can't have the quantities that you had in the past, and it's worth noting. You know, compare what's going on. We say the Battle of Kursk. that took far, not very far away from some, the current battlefields uh, during the Second World War. The, the, this is low numbers. These are these are much smaller armies now because you just can't get them out in the same sort of way. You're almost having to move to high quality uh, because you're just not having the, the the quantities that were there in the past. That's you know obviously going to be one of the issues with Russian mobilization. And then the other thought, which is, again, the one you've written about, is that there's an awful lot of ways that conflicts can be conducted this way these days, which don't require uh, the awful word kinetic. I mean, they don't require you to kill people. Uh, the, 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 they're about influence and they're about disruption and they're about uh, inducements as well. And, you know, a lot of that is is, is not under the control of governments a lot of the time it's a, it's control large large companies and then if governments say as with you know the russians and gazprom try to use it for uh, a political purpose actually they end up undermining uh, an important part of their their economy because people don't trust it anymore for, on a commercial term so i think there's a lot of fascinating issues there uh, but they take us away from old fashioned military power
2: Exactly. And there's a whole new book to be written about sort of command of the the non-military. Look, I, I would love to continue this conversation, but alas, we are out of time. So I really want to say very much my thanks to Sir Lawrence Friedman, to our audience, thanks for your questions,
0: and to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.